The views and opinions of this program are those of its host and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of 90.1 FM, KKFI, Midcoast Radio Project, or its staff and volunteers. Welcome to Jaws of Justice Radio on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. It's Monday morning. My name is Terry. Today our show marks the 10th annual Wrongful Conviction Day, and host Latara Smith will speak with Stephanie M. Burton, attorney and owner of Stephanie M. Burton, LLC. Listeners may be aware that Latara is the founder of KC Freedom Project and that she works tirelessly in the best interest of wrongfully convicted persons. No innocent person should ever spend a day in prison, and yet innocent people are wrongfully convicted and incarcerated, both in the United States and in countries all around the world, every day. Stephanie Burton has a law office in Kansas City, Missouri, and she specializes in criminal justice. Latara and Stephanie will speak on wrongful convictions, conviction integrity unit in the courts, and Stephanie's plans to address those issues. Let's come together to honor the resilience of those who have endured wrongful convictions and to inspire action toward preventing such injustices in the future. There's a need to raise awareness and foster a fairer legal system. In the second half of our program, Latara will speak with Mataka S. Carey and Sheila Bruno about post-incarceration syndrome, a syndrome similar to PTSD. Even after serving their official sentences, many people continue to suffer the mental effects. Mataka and Sheila are representatives of an amazing organization called Wife After Prison. The prison environment is almost diabolically conceived to force the offender to experience the pangs of what many psychiatrists would describe as mental illness. It makes no sense, and even less sense added to the injustice of wrongful conviction. On Jaws of Justice, we examine how to find justice in our society. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Now, our show. Hi, I'm Latar Smith of the KC Freedom Project. I would like to thank everyone for tuning in today. Um, can you guys hear me? Uh, okay, great, because my phone kind of went off here. I want to thank everyone for tuning in today to KKFI 90.1 FM. I We're going to be talking about, um, today is National Wrongful Conviction Day, and I want to um, first give a very big shout out to all of our exonerees throughout the entire world, uh, because this is your special day, National Wrongful Conviction Day, and I couldn't think of any other time that it would be uh, good for me to speak with Mrs. Stephanie Burton about wrongful convictions. Miss Burton is actually, she is a local attorney in Jackson County, Missouri, but she is also one of the three candidates running for uh, our Jackson County, Missouri prosecutor position. Uh, which is now coming available. So our last prosecutor, Jean Peters Baker, is leaving office. So Stephanie, are you here? I am here. Thank you, Alatar. Uh, Good morning. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Stephanie, 
first, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on the show. And I know that we're having you today and we will most definitely extend the offer to the other two candidates to come on as well, because we'd like to hear what they would have to say in reference to wrongful convictions. But Ms. Burton, let me ask you something. Are you aware that Jackson County, Missouri has the highest number of exonerations in the entire state of Missouri? Are you aware of that? Yeah, I am. I am definitely aware of that. Um, and if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I, I want to say we lead the state. We have 10 exonerees um, from Jackson County. So um, and, and I know a lot of people think, well, that's not a great number. It is an extremely large number of people who have been wrongfully convicted. And those are just the ones that have been exonerated. Those are not the ones that are still fighting the process. So you've got... Um, among those, you've got Richard Buckley, uh, of course, you know, Keith Carnes, Donald Dixon, Ricky Kidd, Ernest Leap, Robert Nelson, John Smith, uh, Kevin Strickland, who was uh, the, the most recent one, Theodore White, and Mike Wilkerson. So those are all Jackson County cases um, of known exonerees um, and the, uh, of ones that have actually been exonerated, but there are still there are still many that are still fighting um, their cases right now. Right. Um, what do you know of as far as wrongful convictions? What causes, what are some of the main reasons that cause wrongful convictions? And what do you think, what are some of the ways that you would address uh, wrongful convictions? Well, and see wrongful convictions, there's, there's a myriad of reasons why. Um, what you'll see most commonly is Brady violations or prosecutorial misconduct, um, which also can you know, includes police misconduct. So if there is police misconduct, that is imputed to the state uh, under prosecutorial misconduct. Also, sadly, you have ineffective assistance of counsel where you have a defense attorney that's not doing their job properly. They're not investigating the cases. They're not actively working the cases. They're not uh, putting the time into the cases that, that needs to be done. Um, and usually that coincides with the prosecutorial misconduct um, where there are things that are errors that they're not paying attention to. Um, also, uh, rulings, bad rulings by the court, bad rulings uh, by judges, what evidence comes in, what evidence does not. And a lot of times uh, you don't find out until after unfortunately that person has been found guilty and uh, the next attorney on, uh, the post-conviction attorney hires an investigator that goes out and looks into the case and does the work. Um, that's when this stuff comes to light. And when, when that happens, you're trying to unring the bell. And just, just as trivia, it usually takes, like let's just say the Innocence Project grabs the case, uh, accepts the case, it'll usually take them seven years, at least from the date they get it, uh, to actually get it back in court. So, um, you know, the, the causes, there, there's so many, and people who lie. <laughs> I mean, false testimony. Um, yes. a, a lot of the times in these, uh, when we see exonerees, we have witnesses that recant their testimony, um, where either uh, they lied intentionally, police told them to lie, they felt threatened. There's just so many things that get involved in it. And it's when when people stop seeking truth and justice and just start seeking wins, that's where you see your wrongful convictions. 
Right, right. And and you're right. Everything you just said, that was a test question I wanted to ask you <laughs> because everything you said was absolutely correct and on point. And, um, you know, I don't think people understand how easy it is to get caught up in a wrongful conviction. It's very, very easy to do. It's easy to do, but it's very hard to undo. It takes right. a lot of it takes a lot of time to undo. And it takes a lot of money to undo those things, okay? Absolutely. Those wrongful conviction cases. And unfortunately, that leads the exonerees to sit in prison for long amounts of time, totally an injustice, totally a miscarriage of justice, incarcerated, sometimes for decades. Right. We saw with decades. Kevin when he had been in there 40 plus years. Um, and it's it's really sad because, you know, once you've, once you've already lost at the trial level, you know, for one, you spent a lot of money at the trial level, and then you've got to go through the appellate process. And if you don't get the relief there, you've got to go through the post-conviction process. And it is, it is so painstaking because by the time you can get somebody to take a look, that's, you know, you've, you've exhausted all your finances, you've exhausted all your financial resources, you've lost some contact with your friends and family, um, and you're still pushing. And just imagine like it's it's already emotionally and uh, mentally damaging being incarcerated just just off the top, but being incarcerated for something you did not do, that is a whole different level of trauma. Um, and I'm sure you're going to hit that later on. I don't want to I don't want to go into your second segment, but it is a a completely different level of trauma. And then even after you're exonerated and you let go. Um, people doubt that you just slipped through the cracks and you found some loophole and you've gotten off on some technicality. They don't even acknowledge the fact that you were actually innocent. And that's, you know, I mean, don't, don't get me on that soapbox. That's, that's a whole different set of right. that come with that. Well, you said two things I want to go back to. We talked about the financial part. I'm going to come back to that in a second. But you said something about trial, okay? Now, and you said something about investigations. And with me being an investigator, I know firsthand because these are really the only type of cases that I look into. Individuals saying, hey, I didn't do this. You know, uh, I, I've seen a lot of cases where attorneys did not do the investigative work. They didn't hire an investigator to do the work. And that unfortunately led to the individuals being innocent and wrongly convicted. So that goes back to, and like you said, trial. You know, a lot of things could have been done different in trial. And um, so with you saying that, let me let me just ask you this really, really quick, because this is an important question for me, especially knowing that you're running as one of the three candidates for our current it's, it's opening. Four candidates in the race. Oh, it's four candidates. Well, see, four. I'm a little bit behind. I'm <laughs> a little bit out of the loop now. Four candidates. Well, still, my concern would be this, because you mentioned trial. Okay. Um, I've seen so many trials go bad, which led to someone being wrongly convicted. And uh, I would think as a prosecutor, you know, you would be able to look at those cases and say, hey, this didn't happen in this trial. That didn't happen in this trial. You know, things that I saw as an investigator, I'm like, why they didn't bring this out or why they didn't bring that out? And I'm not an attorney. I'm an investigator. But with you being an attorney, let me ask you something, because I've seen that a lot. Let me ask you, how much trial experience do you have? Well, me, I have done, I would say roughly 
about 38 jury trials. I'm, I know I'm close to 40 jury trials. I don't know if there's between 36 and 38 that I've done. Um, and not to mention, gosh, over 100 bench trials. But um, uh, I most of my trial experience is in violent crimes. So okay. I don't do very much um, low-level criminal defense anymore. Like because those cases, those cases usually are going to get resolved. Um, uh, but mainly, my practice focuses on your your violent crimes, your murders, um, sex crimes, your uh, robberies, and things of that nature. Well, that's really important for, to know because most wrongful convictions, all the ones I know, they're really violent crimes. Right. And so, with with you having that experience, that's a good thing to have because uh, going to the second part of what you said about finances, that makes me bring up the issue of conviction integrity units. Okay. Right. Um, so, so that goes back to me saying, having a prosecutor with an experience, I, and it, with the trial, you know, having the trial experience, that experience, I, because as you know, we do have a conviction integrity unit in Jackson County. Okay. We, we have one, um, that was the purpose and the mission of the Casey Freedom Project when we came on board back in 9, uh, 2014. We were advocating for a conviction integrity unit. With me coming out of Dallas County, Texas, being familiar with and kind of hands-on with the implementation, that was of uh, that conviction integrity unit. That was the first one in the United States, uh, which was established under the, the uh, direction of uh, Craig Watkins, who was the DA at that time. Well, when I came to Kansas City and I started hearing about these wrongful conviction cases, especially Keith Carnes, um, that is when I said, hey, we need to push for a conviction integrity unit. We need to find a module case that I can go to the prosecutor with and say, here's the case. It's clear this person's wrongly convicted. Here's your module case to show this is why we need a conviction integrity unit in Jackson County. Now, the only person Jackson County has released from their conviction integrity unit it's Kevin Strickland, okay? Uh, I get complaints from inmates who are saying, hey, I'm innocent. They've submitted their paperwork to the Conviction Integrity Unit uh, as it stands now, and every single person has been turned down. No one has met the criteria to have their cases reviewed. Now, that's very alarming, and that's very concerning because with the Conviction Integrity Unit, it should be a unit that is in the prosecutor's office, but not part of the prosecutor's office. I hope I said that correctly. It should be a fully staffed unit with its own attorney, it, an investigator, uh, 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 someone who's doing their policies, all of these different types of things. And that is not how our current conviction integrity unit under the direction of Gene Peters Baker is, is operating. It's not. What what do you think about that? The conviction integrity unit, the one we have now, the way that it stands, and the fact that we've only let one person out and it's been established a few years. You know, and, and, and it's it's interesting because, you know, I've actually written best practices and policy and application uh, for conviction and integrity unit. And, you know, you have people who have uh, uh, conviction unit, review units in name only, like Krinos, um, where they have them, they're listed on the website, and it sounds good, but there's actually no process and mechanism by which they're used. And that's what I suspect we have at Jackson County. Like you don't know who to contact. You don't know uh, exactly how the, how the process is going. 
it needs to be within the prosecutor's unit office, but like you said, independent. So what you need for your conviction integrity unit is an attorney, and you need one that ha does uh, post-conviction, someone who knows what they're doing. That's important. You can't just have a staff attorney from your office that is also actively prosecuting the cases. And here's why. Because let's just say one of the cases they prosecute, right. the person wants their review, you've got the wolf watch in the hen house. That doesn't work. It's, it's a conflict. You have to have an attorney that is not associated and, and with that office otherwise. Their only job, only job has to be the investigation of the cases. And you need an investigator that's a part of that union that investigates. And probably more than one, especially in a county like Jackson County, that's huge. You need more than one and you need its own staff. And that it can be in the office, but it needs to be under lock and key. And those people work on their island on those cases because you have to be able to go through and review the files. And if you're too familiar and chummy um, with the people in that office, you're not doing the review effectively because you have to be able to be unbiased when you're looking through the prosecutorial file. And a lot of people don't know, you know, the file that they take to court with them is not always necessarily the actual file. That's exactly. The file that they take with them. But you, you want their notes and you want their impressions. You want that attorney work product because when you get in those That's files right. and you see what they are talking about amongst themselves, when they're sending uh, the, the defendant's discovery to jailhouse snitches and things of that nature, and they're very blatant and arrogant about it when they're putting it in their files because they're among friends. They're talking amongst each other. And that's not in the information that the public or the defense attorney gets. And so when you're talking about having an actual unit that's going to be effective, you have to be able to say, I'm going to step away from this. I don't want anybody working on these cases that is prosecuting in our office. Because I want to make sure, as the prosecutor, your first order of business is seeking veracity, is seeking the truth. And if you are seeking the truth, you can't be intimidated by the fact that you might have made a mistake, or your office or the prior administration may have made a mistake. And you have to be able to be transparent enough to allow that review in to see where it can be done. Because we have, you know, a lot of those cases where we named out those exonerees, it was... <laughs> one prosecutor associated with a couple of those. And you have to be willing to say, okay, it is now very well known that this person was not doing their job ethically and, and take a time to review everything. Not saying that everything she touched was bad, but we don't know. And it's worth review. And I think that if anybody is going to call themselves a seeker of truth and justice as the prosecutor and raise their right hand to take that oath, they have to be willing to look and accept the fact that anytime you have human hands touching something, there's a possibility for error. The only right. way you don't do, you know, you don't get that is if you just don't do anything. So, you know, that that's, we're, we're and, and I'm sorry, I get so passionate about that. When we're talking about actual conviction integrity units, you have to have a process in place. There's no reason why everybody should be denied. And, there, and when you review files, the person who's reviewed the files, then, it takes time to go through them. So if they're sending it in and they get a letter two weeks later saying, yeah, we looked at it and it's, and it's all good, they've not looked at your case. Right. And, and that's actually what they're getting back. It's taken a little bit more than two weeks. 
but that is actually what they are getting back. And, you know, I, I think back to um, Keith Carnes' case. I think back to Keith's case. And, um, you know, we went to our local prosecutor and took literally everything. Actually, I got hounded by so many people because I went to the prosecutors with much of the evidence that we had in Keith's case and said, hey, listen, here's this case. And what people didn't know is that Mr. Carnes could have gotten into court a couple of years earlier, but he decided to let me use his case as an example module case to try to get a conviction integrity unit. And so we went with going to the prosecutor's office and um, Dion Sanker investigated Mr. Carnes' case, held it up for about 11 months. People didn't know that we did that. We went to the police department. I did. I went and said round table. All of this stuff is videotaped and brought every police misconduct that I saw in his case, brought it to them, sat down round table. Chief Deputy Cheryl Rose, some other people, they were all there. Everyone knew what happened in Keith Carnes' case, but none of them, even after we got a conviction integrity unit implemented, they would not address his wrongful conviction. Mr. Carnes did not get relief until we filed his case. When we filed it in Jackson County, they denied it. They said, nope, jurisdictional issue, it's too late. So Mr. Carnes had to go all the way to the Supreme Courts, and it was the Supreme Courts that gave him the relief. They had much of the evidence, but they chose to ignore that, and I think that is horrible. So what you're saying about the format and how that conviction integrity unit has to be formed is absolutely correct. It is it is right. And, and even when we know we had problematic prosecutors in Jackson County, as a matter of fact, let me say this. I just got a notification. Everyone knows that I moved out of state. So my mail is really slow getting to me. Well, back in July, Amy McGowan, which is the one of our former prosecutors in Jackson County, who was associated with Ricky Kidd's case, had associations on Keith Carnes' case. We filed against her license with the Missouri OCDC office and in Kansas. Missouri OCDC office did not hold her accountable for anything. However, Kansas held her accountable in two of the Kansas cases that we complained on her about, and they held her accountable in the Ricky Kids case. So there you go. <laughs> That's another issue, our OCDC office. But, you know, I, I would like to know this. Um, what do you plan to do to address wrongful convictions? Well, first is to have an actual unit <laughs> that, that does. You said have an unit. actual unit? Yes. And okay. So, okay. And, and I would invite those people to reapply if they have. I mean, because one of the things that I always advocate for is when you're, if you're going to deny a case, do a memo to the file in case it ever has to come back up that uh, illustrates the reasons why you don't believe this case is appropriate um, for, uh, for further review. And that way it's not just a, uh, summarily denying a case but actually getting that information. So the first thing is getting that unit established and also reviewing all of Amy McGowan's cases. I mean, it's, it's been true at this point, her reign of terror, for a lack of a better word, extends uh, beyond Missouri and into Kansas. And I think that we have, we owe it to the people of, of, of Jackson County to look and review all of her cases. I think we just start that off the top. Um, yes. And 
What's the for error? Okay. And I, I left out a name too. It's not just Ricky Kidd and Keith Carnes who had a, a dealing with Amy McGowan. It was also Richard Buckley, who is a now, uh, he's a Jackson County attorney. It wasn't for a while because of all this situation, but he is now back working as an attorney. His name is Richard Buckley. He was also, Amy McGowan was his prosecutor. So yes, I, I'm glad to hear you say that that as uh, the prosecutor, if you were to get in the position of being the local prosecutor there, that you would not have a problem, you know, um, calling a, a review of Amy McGowan's cases. And you know what? That should have happened when Ricky Kent's case. So, you know what? I want to tell you, Stephanie, I see that we, we we're time's up. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate you and I wish you the best as you are running for Jackson County prosecutor. Thank you guys so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. You take care and have a blessed day. Everyone, we're going to go to a break now. Tune in every Monday from 3 to 6 p.m. for Mother's Mix, where your host, Lady D, will bring a great mix of music to your afternoon. That's Mother's Mix every Monday from 3 to 6 p.m. right here on KKFI. Hi, this is Penny Massa, a longtime listener at KKFI. KKFI's Fund Drive will be starting soon, and we need volunteers for our phone bank. You can participate remotely or by coming into the station. All phone bank volunteers must be comfortable talking to donors on the phone and entering pledges on the computer. In addition, remote phone bank volunteers will need a reliable internet connection and a computer with a microphone and speakers. Sign up for a shift today at kkfi.org slash phone bank or contact our volunteer coordinator at 816-994-7864 for more information. The Parkville Living Center's Arts and Crafts Fair will be October 7th, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. at the Parkville Presbyterian Church, 819 Main in Parkville, Missouri. Artists will include those who work with a variety of media, browse the displays, and perhaps treat yourself to a sandwich while doing so. For more information, go to parkvillelivingcenter.org slash artists. This message is a public service of KKFI. Here's the calendar for the week of October 2nd. Legal Aid of Western Missouri can provide free civil legal services to low-income and vulnerable people who live in Jackson County, Missouri. If you're interested, please call 816-474-6750 to apply. For information about Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense meetings this week, please go to momsdemandaction.org. Everyone's welcome mothers and others. Please check the calendar at moresquare.org for events you can attend. You can get involved. A list of services, meals, and hotlines are available at lawrenceprogressivecalendar.blogspot.com. That list is updated daily. Today, Monday, October 2nd, 6 to 9 p.m. at the SHIP, 1221 Union Avenue, Kansas City, Missouri, 
You're invited to a thought-provoking evening dedicated to shedding light on the importance of justice and the fight against wrongful conviction to observe Wrongful Conviction Day and stand together to raise awareness about this critical issue. Ricky Kidd will share poignant poetry from his book, Vivid Expressions, accompanied by a soul-stirring musical performance by singer, harpist, and author Calvin Arsenia. Tuesday, October 3rd, 11 a.m., there's a writing group at the DARE Center for the Homeless, 944 Kentucky, Lawrence, Kansas. If you have questions about the writing group, please contact Brian at DARE. Tuesday, October 3rd, 3 to 5 p.m., Legal Aid of Western Missouri will be available to answer questions at Operation Breakthrough, 3039 Troost, Kansas City, Missouri, sponsored by the Kansas City, Missouri Public Library. Wednesday, October 4th, 5.30 to 6.30 p.m., there's an Olathe General Election candidate meet and greet in rooms A through C at the Olathe Community Center, 1205 East Kansas City Road, Olathe, Kansas. Thursday, October 5th, 6 p.m., Corey's Network is going to start the Grief to Relief seminars, both live and virtual using Zoom, at the Maddie Road Center, 148 North Topping Avenue, Kansas City, Missouri. For more information, you can call 816-834-9161. Saturday, October 7th, 9 to 10.30 a.m., What's on Your Ballot? Vote Local. That's a general meeting at 9400 Flum Road, Lenexa, Kansas, hosted by the League of Women Voters, Johnson County. Please bring non-perishable food items to donate to the Fund Pantry. Items listed in this calendar can also be found on this episode's page at the KKFI website, kkfi.org, as well as on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. Please take care of yourselves and others. Stay safe, be kind to each other, and thanks for listening to Jaws of Justice. Let's return to the program. Everyone? We're back here on the second half of the show. I am Latar Smith. For those of you who are just tuning in, Latar Smith-Carnes of the KC Freedom Project. And I have this morning on the second half of the show, I'm blessed and honored to have a Miss Sheila Bruno. Miss Bruno, are you there? I am here. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I totally appreciate you for coming. It was kind of last minute. And I thank you so much for being so accommodating. For those of you who do not know who Miss Bruno is, Miss Bruno is the author of a book titled Wife After Prison, Caught in the Aftermath. Miss Bruno, I have read just a little bit of this book, and I want to tell you, as a wife who was caught in the aftermath, I so can relate to what I've read in your book thus far. Not only can I relate to it, I want to let you know that it has absolutely blessed my soul. And it has given me some relief to know and to understand what I was going through and what I was dealing with with my former spouse. Can you tell us what motivated you to write this book. Sure. And once again, thank you for having me on your show. <clears throat> the motivation came from 
uh, I was married to someone who was incarcerated for 28 years, first two and a half, absolutely amazing husband, wonderful marriage. And then going into that third year, I began to notice some changes in him. And um, for the sake of time, uh, we separated three times because the behaviors were so affecting me psychologically, I didn't understand. I looked for information. I looked for support groups for families, for wives who has who have a loved one in prison, and I couldn't find one. Um, but after I discovered post-incarceration syndrome in 2000, uh, it was right at 2017, 2018, uh, Googled, can a boy become a man in prison? And up popped this list of websites. The psychological impact of incarceration was one website. Post-incarceration syndrome and relapse was another uh, uh, website. And what I was living, what I was reading is what I was living. Yes. And I asked, uh, I asked my friend who I was once married to, Kevin, to look it over and he uh, confirmed that's what he was going through. And so that just prompted me to uh, start asking around, have you had heard post-incarceration syndrome? And everything came up, no. But when Kevin and I started doing Facebook Lives, pulling back the sheets on our relationship and the devastation that post-incarceration syndrome uh, causes, then we start getting the cries in, oh my God, you know, had I known this, maybe me and my husband would still be together or, oh my God, had I known this, maybe my son would still be free today. Uh, one of the saddest ones that I heard was, oh my God, had I known this, maybe my uh, husband would still be alive because three days after he got out of prison, he committed suicide. And so also the validation came with when I was just start uh, uh, advocating this raising awareness, raising awareness. I wrote the book and the family members were getting it on the outside. And I was like, you know, those on the inside need to get it. So I committed to donating a copy of my book to every prison in the United States. Thus far, I've completed 17 states self-funded. And uh, so then start getting letters from uh, uh, guys on the inside mm -hmm. saying, sis, keep talking about this. Uh, one guy wrote, I am Kevin and wife is Sheila. As I was reading your book, it was though as I was reading my story. And one guy said, had I known this, this is my fourth bit. Had I known this, a conversation with my wife that turned from uh, turned civil from civil to homicide when I jumped off the couch and I murdered my wife. He said, had I known this, had this information, maybe she would still be with us today. So uh, that prompted me to, to start advocating, to start talking about this. I just came from Alaska and Alaska has no clue, you know, uh, the symptoms. And it, it's like same behavior, different zip code, same behavior, different country. And this is why I, I couldn't understand. Why aren't we talking about this? A lot of people want to say, oh, that's just PTSD. PTSD and PICS is totally different. The causes are different. The triggers are different. different. The symptoms are di different. The dura duration is different. So a lot of people, I think they just don't want to address it because they have no understanding of it. They don't want to start something new. So let's just categorize, categorize it and call it PTSD when it's not PTSD.
It's not. And it's inhumane, I think, and it's and it's unjust that we do not want to take a look at the psychological impact of imprisonment. Psychologists and psychiatrists said we fail. We fail when we fail to educate those inside how prison affects them. You lock a man in a box, you lock a man in a cage for years, for decades, and you don't think he's gonna uh, be uh, affected? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I mean, it is my hope, it is my drive, it is my prayer that one time we will open up this conversation inside of prisons. We will allow curriculums inside of prison so these guys can and ladies could start preparing themselves because a lot of them walk out that back gate and they think they're okay. But this is the deal. So I've asked so many people who have come out of prison, how did you survive prison? And they said, I had to become someone so that I wouldn't get taken advantage of it. My friend who I was once married to said, Sheila, I had to become a monster. And unfortunately, when they come out that back gate, if not all of that behavior, some of that behavior is going to come out with them. So here it is. They go to prison. They have to put on a mask and then they come out to society and then they have to put on another mask. They are smothering. They are suffering silent not to mention the effects that it has on the on the family members right so many proud so many programs re-entry programs they want to just talk about employment talk about employment but you cannot you will not have a successful re-entry program if you do not address the psychological impact of incarceration if you do not address family re reunification family is the most important stakeholders in the re program. And if we don't have a seat at the table, you're not having a successful re-entry program. These guys are not going to succeed. One gentleman went through a program, went through a program, got the cap and gown, had the certificate, and three weeks later, he takes a gun and he blows his heart out. Yeah. 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 You know, you, you said something, and uh, uh, it takes me back to something because... Um, Man, it, it's been a whirlwind. You know, I, I'm very transparent. It's been a whirlwind uh, trying to help my former spouse in his transition uh, from prison. And, and uh, as, I, as I'm as i sitting here listening to you, you know, we're on Zoom so we can see each other, but people can't see us. They can only hear us. But you can see that I've been over here just broke down, crying, being it. quiet, I being quiet, muting the phones, the Zoom, so you no one can hear me crying. But you literally just described everything that I walked through in my 11 month marriage. And, you know, we, you really don't get it. You know, you really don't get everything that they've been through because you don't, you don't see the real them at visit. You yeah. don't talk to the real them with the 15 minute phone calls. Right. They, they have it together when they come to visit. Absolutely. They have Absolutely. it together on those phone calls, but when they come out, and, and they don't do this intentionally. That, oh, that's I, what I want to yeah. say. That's what mm -hmm. I want to say to encourage the other wives, my friends, Ro, Jackie, that are married to exonerees and, and just women in general I know who are married to women who've been to prison. They're not doing these things intentionally. Yeah. It's a disorder. It's a disorder. And it is a, it's a calling to have to stand and be with one of them. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you when you said, when they lived in a box, the Lord said to me one day, he said, go in your closet. 
I went in my closet. I said, why am I here, Lord? He said, look around. He said, imagine being Keith. Keith is my former spouse. Imagine living in your closet with one other person for 18 years and seven months. Yeah. And that's when the reality hit me. Yeah. And I began to research. And uh, it was uh, uh, attorney Roe F. Wards who made me familiar with your book. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm telling you the impact of incarceration. And I'm a formerly incarcerated woman, but I only did 10 and a half months. But even then, when I came out of prison, it was different for me because what Kevin told you about, you have to become something when you're in those prison walls. I was not a tough, rough gangster type of chick. Okay. I was really uppity, prissy, none of that stuff, but I had to become a tough, rough gangster acting chick to survive in federal prison. Yeah. You understand what I'm yeah. saying? You can't show emotions. So this right. is why they come out and they're almost emotionless for a while because they've been trained all those years. If you show emotion in prison, you're weak. And yeah. if you're weak, you're going to get got. Yeah. And it's so, too Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, you're fine. So I'm just listening and taking up everything yeah. you're saying, but wow, wow, wow. wow. This, you're you're right. And this is the thing. Uh the things that they say in the visitation room and on the phone, they have good intentions. They really do. Yes. But like I've told family members, they don't know what they don't know until they come outside. They don't yes. know that you're not gonna be able to do this. They're not right out the gate. They don't, they don't, they don't uh understand that um my thing is this uh not only do we need to educate those on the inside we also have to educate family members because yes. ignorance is very expensive ignorance costs me my marriage ignorance costs you your marriage right because we didn't have an understanding it doesn't mean that it's anything uh, uh negative on our part we just didn't know and even so, it's so important. We're going to talk about what what the what the solution is. It's very, very important. If they are not open to see a mental health professional, we need to have peer to peer support groups where these individuals can come together and vent versus suffering in silence for years. Kevin was suffering in silence until it just came uh, uh, to a head. Another thing that we had we cannot take off the table. When we talk about this, we cannot talk, take off the table trauma, how trauma affects people. So angry with Kevin. How dare you come into my life? My life was good. I had all of this going on. How dare you bring this into my life? But when, it was when I gained an understanding of trauma that I said, hey, I can't be mad at this brother for not, <clears throat> excuse me, for not wanting to deal or not, not necessarily not wanting to deal, but unable to deal with the trauma right now. Yeah. Yes. I, yeah, I couldn't say that was then, this, I'll get over it, right? So right. once I gained an understanding of all of this, I was like, I can't get mad at this brother. Family members are blinded to this. Not only a system impacted citizens, but family members are blinded to this as well. So this is this is not an easy journey, as you know. You know, whether it's a husband, whether it's a son, whether it's a father that you're dealing with, this is not an easy journey. But my thing is this, educate yourself so you'll know the signs, you'll know the systems, you'll know the behaviors, right? So you'll know what you're dealing with. 
right? It, I mean, and, and it's just the simplest things that we take for granted. Uh, a, a wife was angry. My light bill is so high because he never cuts the lights off or whatever. I said, ma'am, how long was he gone? She said 25 years. For 25 years, he hadn't had to cut off a light. He hadn't had to cut on the light. So it's that's the right. things that we take for granted that they're supposed to know and they haven't done it in decades, right? So this is the conversation for everybody. People say, oh, is it just for wives? No, this is a conversation for parole officers. This is a conversation for DOC. This is a conversation for mental health professionals that say, I want to help. I want to know more, but I don't understand. So this is a conversation for everybody. It affects everybody. A parole office, uh, officer told me, excuse me, after I had did a workshop for them, she said, ma'am, can I talk to you? She pulled me in a separate room. She said, I had never heard of this. She said, but you have just described my life to a T. She said, my husband is had did 19 months. She said, and I am going to have to, I'm going to file for divorce. Right. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is, this thing is huge. This is, this is a huge, huge, uh, it's just huge. It's just, and huge. you know what? I know that many of the marriages or relationships end up being ruined or in divorce, but you know, in me and Keith's case, I, I didn't, I didn't want the divorce. I want to be the first to, to say that. Um, I, I didn't want that divorce, but Keith said something that was so profound. And this is why I agreed to the divorce. Um, he said for him, marriage, the commitment of marriage felt like confinement. Now I had to go to the Lord with that because that just broke me down. How can he say this? What's going on here? But, but the Holy Spirit helped me to understand that, you know, and I'm very boldly. I speak, speak about my faith. I don't, I'm very bold. And yeah. uh, the Holy Spirit helped me to understand that, you know, but I just, uh, it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. And I'll yeah. tell you something that I experienced uh, when we were looking for a therapist for Keith. We could not hardly find a therapist that specialized in trauma. And, and even when he did get the first trauma therapist, they didn't know anything about post-incarceration syndrome. So the, 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 the counseling and the therapy wasn't effective. Mm -hmm. So do you, do you see that a lot? Do you hear the wives say, or the, the significant others or family members say, we can't find a therapist that specializes in this type of trauma. Okay. So, so with Kevin and I, the first, uh, after he decided that it was going to go and, uh, seek treatment, he went to see someone and he came in that night and he said, she ain't gonna be able to help me. Right. He said, uh, I was like, Oh my God. And, uh, so he said, I'm going to try her one more time. And so he went back the following week and he said, she can't help me. She's too intrigued about the uh, amount of time that I did prison, right? And she had only uh, been practicing for five years. So, you know, of course I'm like, oh my God, how long is it going to take him to find one, da, 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 da. But he did. And I can honestly say that this lady was very, very effective, right? She was heavy trauma. She mm -hmm. was heavy heavy trauma, years experience of that. And she was able to give him some, some tools and some techniques to use when that old behavior wanted to creep in. And yes. this is why I say, you know, just don't go out there and get no uh, family counselor or whatever. This person has to have heavy 
heavy, heavy trauma experience to, to, to be able to assist those coming in. And there's not a lot of that out there. Uh, mental health professionals have reached out and said, I want to help, but I don't know. I, I don't know. I've never had a client that had been to prison. And this is why some months ago I formed a round table. Okay, let's get system impact citizens on Zoom with uh, mental health professionals and let's talk. Let's let's let the system impact the citizens talk and see if the mental health uh, professionals can address these issues. Right. One of the things that system impacted citizens have said that they need to come out of that book. They need to close the book. They trying to diagnose from the book. Right. So they need to close the book and really understand what it's like for someone to be. Uh, and like I always say, locked in a cage locked in a box for decades. Right. And you said something. You What did you say earlier? Same same behavior, different zip code? Same behavior, different zip code. I've talked on platforms in uh, Australia, platforms in Alaska, platforms in Australia. Same behavior. I have gotten calls from everywhere, all over the world. Same behavior, different country, different zip code, different nationality. One thing about post-incarceration syndrome, it does not discriminate. It doesn't. Yes. And I I can most definitely agree with you on that one because I know a lot of exoneree wives. And it wasn't until we went to a national exoneree conference in Arizona back in April. Um, actually, Keith and I filed divorce two days before that conference. A lot of people didn't know that, but I still went to support him. Um, and I, I knew that there was going to be some 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 information that we would get that would, would help us, even though we had decided to go separate ways. You know, I still wanted to go and support Keith, as I still do in, in other matters. But I can say this here. Um, every wife that I met, every single wife and significant other that I met, even some of the moms that were there to support their exoneree sons, they all were experiencing the same trials and tribulations, the same behavior. So like you said, same behavior, different zip codes, same behavior, different states, same behavior. So we have to know that we need more trauma therapists that specialize. We need people to get educated in this post-incarceration syndrome so that they can begin. The more people we have trained in this, the more number of, uh, you know, people we're going to be able to help as they are coming out. Because I'm telling you, if they don't get this, they cannot successfully re-enter society. Yeah. It, it, it's not. Because yeah. this behavior leads to addiction, uh, because they go to the addiction because they want to suppress yeah. everything and put it to the yeah. back of their head yeah. so they don't have to face it yeah. because oh, they don't absolutely. have to face anything. Yeah. Kevin said to me, he said, Sheila, as much as trauma as I have experienced in my life, pre-incarceration, incarceration, post-incarceration, post he said that uh, therapy would have to be a lifestyle for me. I would have to yeah. have ongoing 
therapy. So yeah. So this conversation, you, you we can never end this conversation. This is like a uh, onion. You pull back one layer, you think, yeah. like, now nah, there's something else. So this is a conversation that is never ended. Once again, I want to thank you for the opportunity to allow me to come on and share, briefly share. Yes. Well, I appreciate having you here and I appreciate you coming on. I'm not for sure on the timing that we have left, but I do want to say this. Today is National Wrongful Conviction Day. So all of our exonerees from all over the world, I want to wish you the best day. All of our Jackson County exonerees, you guys, you everyone be blessed, stay encouraged. Uh, as I said, I'm not for sure on the timing because I actually can't see how much time we have left. But I want to say thank you so much, Ms. Bruno, for writing that book. I wish I would have gotten your book earlier on. I got it after the fact, but I'm very thankful that I do have it now so that I can move forward, be a blessing, share this information and try to help, you know, uh, try to help save the next marriage or the next relationship. Right, right, right. So yeah. thank and you so much. You're welcome. Anytime. Okay. All righty. Everyone, right. thank you for tuning in. You have a blessed day and enjoy National Wrongful Conviction Day. Radio, a discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk World Radio, we're talking about prosecutorial misconduct and a new report from a coalition called It Can Happen to You. Our guests are Kat Dean, Communications Director for It Can Happen to You, who was the chief researcher on the report, and Peter B. Collins, a retired radio host and podcaster who worked on wrongful convictions for over 30 years as past president of the Freedom Foundation, a nonprofit founded by a San Quentin prisoner to support innocent inmates. There is a website you can check out at it can happen to, that's a numeral to you.org. Uh, Peter and Kat, welcome to Talk World Radio. Great to be with you, David. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for producing this report and all the work you're doing. What are your what are your primary findings? Well, David, most people who are listening or watching this interview are aware that over the last 20 years plus, there has been a wave of exonerations. Individuals who are convicted of serious crime, who are serving lengthy sentences, including lifetime sentences and the death penalty, for crimes that they did not commit. 
And when you unpack what produces a wrongful conviction, near the top of the list is misconduct by prosecutors. They sometimes cover up inconsistencies in testimony or the findings of investigations by police. They often will uh, hide the evidence. There is a Supreme Court ruling called Brady that requires a prosecutor to share evidence, including exculpatory evidence, with the defense. And these are the most common faults that lead to a wrongful conviction. So the exonerations, over 280 in California alone, these exonerations often include misconduct by the prosecutors who sent somebody to prison. And under the system in California, the state bar is assigned the role of uh, investigating and disciplining prosecutors who break the law, who violate the rules of the court. But to by and large, there is no consequence. The state bar will either, you know, at worst, write a letter of rebuke to an individual, but we don't see any cases of uh, law licenses being revoked or even suspended in, you know, except in a, in a handful of cases. Peter B. Collin, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk World Radio. We hope you enjoyed today's show and that we leave you with something to think about, something to talk to your neighbors about, and a reason to get involved. As always, the opinions expressed are those of the host and the guests of Jaws of Justice Radio, not of KKFI, the Midcoast Radio Project Incorporated, its staff or volunteers. You can find our calendar of events and a link to our show episodes on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. You can always listen to us live and find our podcast on the KKFI website, kkfi.org. If you have a show idea or want to help produce the show, you can send an email inquiry or comment to kkfi.org forward slash contact. This is Jeff reminding you our outro music is Higher Ground from the Playing for Change CD. 